0: There's so much work to be done in the community with making secure, solid stuff and learning from people. I mean, why does OWASP even exist? Why, why do we even have this idea of understanding common issues, common problems, you know? Uh, re- there resources to help us do it better next time. And I feel like we're not learning at the curve that we should be at considering the resources that are available to us.
1: Welcome to OWASP 24 7, sponsored by the Open Web Application Security Project, improving the security of software. With support from the Nexus Community Project, supporting millions of open source developers worldwide. Additional support provided by CATSCAN from Proactive Risk. Hi this is Mark Miller with OWASP 24-7. Today I'm talking with Jaya Baloo who's going to be the keynote speaker at AppSec EU in Belfast. Welcome Jaya. Hi there. So the conference is going to take place in the middle of Belfast. Let's, let's start with what you're going to be doing first. For your keynote you're going to be talking about the future of crypto. Can you give us kind of a background on what you're going to talk about?
0: Well, what I what I want to talk about is actually the way that we, you know, usually implement crypto. So, despite really good crypto standards and, and algorithm sets, we tend to still have a lot of issues when we're implementing crypto. And when I look at my network, I can see that a lot of the vulnerabilities that come out the, the, when we have automated vulnerability scanning in place are still, you know, misconfigured certificates, issues with SSL, a lot of things that we could be doing better from From the basics. But when you take a look at the future of cryptography, I think that's where the really interesting stuff is happening now because with the advent of quantum computing, it's actually going to take a lot of the things that we hold for trusted and granted, it's going to put a lot of that on its head. And that's because a quantum computer will be capable of decrypting most of the asymmetric encryption algorithms that we use today for our public key cryptography. Uh, so it's going to require a whole new set of strategies and new technology in order to be safe in the future.
1: One of the quotes that I like that you had, and I actually laughed when I saw this. When it says, "Live well, laugh often, and encrypt absolutely everything," I, I love that. Do you really anticipate that the world is going to start encrypting, let's say, their emails? My grandma going to encrypt her email?
0: I think one of the failures of the way that we've done security thus far is we haven't made it easy for your grandma. We haven't actually even made it easy for ourselves. Uh, when you talk to, to people, you know, there, there are so few people in our own community that take time to encrypt their email. There's almost no one that doesn't have at least one war story about you know non-revocated PGP keys and as a result can't get back into anything anymore and can't revoke it and it's, it's a real problem in our industry that we haven't made it more easy to use, more built into the way that we think because we, you know, knowing the fact that the adversaries aren't there, we could have held that as an excuse a few years ago. But ever since Snowden, that's no longer viable. So we need to come up with a better reason why we're not crypting everything.
1: It sounds to me as if you're talking about from the development aspect, the applications themselves should be responsible, not the end user.
0: That's, a, that's absolutely right. In fact, I firmly believe that we've put so much of the burden of proof, you know, for being secure on the end user, I think it's unfair. Because the majority of the time, the end user, you know, they're not thinking about security. They they assume that if a tool or, or an operating system or a whatever is popular, that it's secure by default. And it's not. And it's not. And I think we really have failed the user population in as as creators of this stuff, you know, as software hardware vendors and people who actually produce and sell uh, to do this for them.
1: One of the things that is my high evangelism points is the concepts of DevOps. Does what you're talking about integrate into the DevOps mindset?
0: Not as much as it should be. Um, I'm not saying that it's it's bad from the get-go. I really think about DevOps mindsets do change. I don't think it's impossible to be uh, secure and develop Agile, I, I actually think it can go very much hand in hand, uh, I just think it's about how you uh, set the, the framework, the, the idea from the get-go, what are you out to achieve, and you make sure that through your sprints and through your cycles that you're actually still being honest, if you will, uh, to that security privacy conscience in the background.
1: One of the dilemmas of terminology is when you say DevOps, there's no security even implied in the statement itself, the word itself. And I've talked to a lot of people that say that might be one of the problems we're dealing with is one of terminology.
0: I completely agree. I I really very firmly agree because I, I think the initial idea of being able to do DevOps is that you weren't stuck in these, you know, big uh, uh, Vosserfall-like cycles, which was really killing our time to market and that you were able to think much more on your feet about what was required and then do it immediately as needed. I don't think that that necessarily implies taking away the security and privacy aspects. I think it's just how we've evolved it. And I agree with you on the terminology bit. I think that would help a lot.
1: The other thing that you talk about is the um, development and advancements in quantum computing. I find that an exciting proposition.
0: It's scary is what it is, to be honest with you. <laughs> it's, I, Cause the clue is, I mean, think of it this way. It's like the next big thing in, in the sense that it's like the next nuclear bomb. Um, and, and that, that is exciting, but I find it just terrifying in a way because it, it means that the person who gets there first is going to have such a strong and unparalleled advantage to everyone who gets there after that. They're first of all not going to be very chatty about their capability. They're not going to, you know, proclaim, "Here we are. We're the first one. We have a quantum computer uh, that's viable enough to decrypt uh, standard cryptography." They're not going to scream that off the rooftops. They're going to let you use all your weak crypto as long as they can possibly. Stretch it out before it suddenly becomes revealed. I mean, think about what happened after World War II with the Enigma machine. When the British, you know, with the movement of Alan Turling and Bletchley, when they'd actually figure out how to decrypt Enigma, and when they actually took possession of certain Enigma devices, what did they do? They spread it out amongst the Allies and said, you know what? We found this from the Germans. It's a really good crypto device. Why don't you all use it? And they were the only ones who possessed the advantage of full decryption. So I really think that we need, if we you know can learn from the history here, we need to do this better. And it's also because you do want the enemy to use their weak crypto as That's long right. as possible. If you have cryptanalysis, you know, and uh, there are countless, numerous historical. If you if you read Simon Singh's uh, the Cold Book, you know one of my favorite stories in there is about Mary Queen of Scots, her into uh, basically um, uh, what's the word incriminating herself. Um, by allowing her to keep sending messages after, they, you know, they were just waiting to catch her. And I feel that the, the clue with quantum computing is because we simply don't know, you know, it's better to take the adagium you started our talk with about encrypting everything seriously right now. If you have requirements for long-term secrecy, then it's really, really, really relevant that we start encrypting today, yesterday, as soon as possible. And not with any crypto, but really with the strongest key links that we have to offer, you know, really looking at how we optimize it for bandwidth and computational uh, resources and start doing that right now and all the other efforts that are there to look at a post-quantum crypto world, try to really work together with that community to make that possible as well.
1: So, Jaya, who's going to get this first? Is it going to be an IBM? Is it going to be a national government? Is it going to be the underground? Who's going to get to quantum computing first?
0: Well, it's a really good question because everybody's busy with it. Um, And I I, I like that you mentioned IBM because what I think IBM did that's really cool, I don't know if you've seen it, they've actually set up a public cloud-based quantum computer it only has five qubits um but they've actually set that up and you can go now to the ibm site uh, to their quantum co- computing platform and get an account you know the the clue is though that, that you have to kind of really experiment and everything you experiment with in terms of talking to this machine is going to be property of ibm but that being said, I think it's a really cool thing that they made it public and open. Um, Google is also busy with this. They have multiple uh, efforts in uh, quantum computing. So they, first of all, they bought uh, the systems of D-Wave from uh, Canada, which has slightly over two thousand qubits now, I believe. But it's a different type of quantum computer uh, than the one that we would think that would be needed—the uh, universal quantum computer for breaking crypto—but That's very interesting. And they also have their own efforts to build their own quantum computing machine. So uh, Microsoft is also busy with it. Microsoft has this huge lab, uh, lots of universities, of course, Um, the EU, China. I mean, everyone is doing something significant on quantum technologies. When I say everyone, by the way, I should refrain from using that word because it's everyone that can afford it. Because this is going to be one of those things that's a huge disparity between the have and the have-nots. You can't do anything in terms of computing or in post-quantum stuff if you don't have the resources and the budget to fund it. And I think this will be one of those digital divide subjects in the near future. Privacy and security will only be in the hands of those that can pay for it.
1: You're the CISO of the largest telecom in the Netherlands. What keeps you up at night?
0: So much. Um, (laughs) Where do I start? Um, No, it's probably not good for me to say that about KPN. No, look, 2012, uh, when I came on board, the reason I was even hired at the company was because we got hacked. We got really severely hacked by a 17-year-old kid. And um, what keeps me up at night is the fact that I think the majority of telcos have this issue with their legacy equipment. You know, they have, if it's been built, they probably had it because they had to have it because they had to offer this connectivity to a very large user uh, base. And they usually, you know, kind of spun off into all these different directions and have platforms that will, um, that, that will basically make these different spin offs possible. And then all of it belongs to them. So they have all this legacy stuff. They keep building new legacy. They keep adding it all together and combining it, connecting it to each other. So, the fortress is ginormous. You know, it's the Great Wall of China kind of thing. And you're trying to protect all of it. Um, and there's a lot of users and, and business customers. And it's just all kinds of protocols in the, in the soup. And I find, again, like there's so much regulation responsibility and everything coming at the telecom industry but to be fair you know with the nis directive from the eu that's coming down on a lot of industries and there you see quite a bit of regulation for everybody what i am to this moment still surprised by is while that regulation is there for all of us the people that it's not there for is a hardware and software lobby so the nis directive has an exclusion for the hardware and software lobby and to be honest I cannot stomach that. I think that is so cruelly unfair and really kind of, you know, absolves the responsibility of that community to do what they were kind of put on earth to do, which is if you build stuff, make it secure. And the the burden is then shifted to the people who are buying it rather than the people who are making it. I feel very strongly about that. I also feel very strongly about things like the Vassenar Treaty. You know, like when we find an issue, and because we have stuff from all over the planet, I really would like to be able to discuss that with wherever the vendor is coming from. But if the Wassenaar Treaty goes through, it will mean that the things that are found from vulnerability research, that they're not divulgable. So if there's something found in the U.S. that has impact in the EU or in China or wherever, they're not allowed to talk about it with each other, with the vendor, with a branch office. its I think it's insanity. And we have people creating these laws with zero technology background or very little technology background. And it also is a sort of call of action for our community to get more involved in these types of fundamental questions.
1: You know, you brought up something at the very beginning just now about legacy. And it seems that a majority of the problems that we're seeing are because of legacy architecture as opposed to new software. Am I reading that right?
0: No, actually, I think we built crappy new software with the same vulnerabilities we had in the legacy stuff. I was going to use a different word other than crappy. You might've heard that. I know I was going to
1: say you can use shitty. That's okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, But um, the point is that we keep building new things with old vulnerabilities in them. I see it every day. And you know, you want to talk to me about IoT? Like we then we get started. Because I find that it's it's there's no excuse. You know, we, we know all about like resource exhaustion and all types of different protocols. We know how that works. And we still build an IoT framework that has that. So we we just I, I still feel like there's so much work to be done in the community with Making secure, solid stuff and learning from people. I mean, why does OWASP even exist? Why? Why do we even have this idea of understanding common issues, common problems? You know, uh, re- their resources to help us do it better next time. And I feel like we're not learning at the curve that we should be at, considering the resources that are available to us.
1: Bringing it back to OWASP and the AppSec conference. When you do your keynote, what are you hoping people walk away with?
0: I hope I can show you something that you may not have seen before and that you can take it home and actually do something with it. And it's not just, oh, I was at this conference once and there was this thing, but that you actually really can do something with it. And if there's even like one action that you have from there, that is for me a huge success.
1: Thank you so much for your time. It was seriously, I I do a lot of these, but this was thoroughly enjoyable for me. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, thank you. <laughs> now, really good to talk to you and I'll see you in real life in Belfast.
1: You have been listening to O Wasp 24-7 with your host, Mark Miller, and music provided by the George Cole Quintet. with support from the Nexus Community Project supporting millions of open source developers worldwide. Additional support provided by CatScan from Proactive Risk